This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. On the show, you'll hear from leading Australian business owners as they share the lessons they've learned building their companies. You'll learn from their successes as well as some of the challenges they've faced along the way. We also talk to experts from a range of fields who share specialised techniques you can use to improve your business. I'm your host, Savan Tuna, and I'm a director at Alexander Spencer, and I'm really passionate about helping Australian businesses succeed. This is part one of a two-part series with Cameron Schwab, author and founder of Design CEO a leadership and strategy business which uses a range of methodologies and frameworks to help CEOs and their executive leadership team succeed. In today's episode, we discuss Cameron's successful career as a CEO in the AFL and how this experience has allowed him to advise others on leading high-performance teams. You'll learn the importance of setting a vision and purpose for a business, how to provide constructive feedback and how to lead high-performing individuals. Let's jump in. Thank you so much for joining me on the show, Cameron. I'm a massive fan, so it's an honor to be interviewing you today. It's great to be here, and thanks very much for encouraging me and thinking of me. No, not a problem. And for our listeners that don't know you, can you please fill us in on your background and a little bit about your professional journey? My background has been embedded in sport, but more particularly Australian football, which I very much grew up in the son of. So I grew up as a son of a well-known person. So that's always an interesting scenario where people knew of you and knew about you pretty much before you knew yourself in many ways. My father, Alan Schwab, was a well-known football person when I grew up. I suppose followed in his footsteps, although that was never really the intention and ended up spending the majority of my career in Australian football, of which probably the two things I did most, whilst I started off just as an office junior, if you like, back in the day, uh, I ended up quite quickly in recruiting, so talent ID, watching footballers, And that was an interesting time in the sport because it was the emergence of drafting and salary caps and all those sorts of things where perhaps more the the science of recruitment started to play its role rather than just trusting the eye. It went beyond just trusting the eye, although there's obviously a big part of that. And then relatively early days, I got the opportunity of being a CEO, although the title was then general manager and it was of the Richmond Football Club, which was the club I loved and the club that I grew up with. And I got to do that from the age of 24. So that was a pretty serious step into leadership at a very young age. And then I got to do that for pretty much the next 25 years at Richmond, Melbourne and Fremantle in, in the AFL. And, and since that time, perhaps for probably now almost 10 years, I've now used the wisdom gained from the hard lessons learned to teach leadership. So effectively, I think of myself now as a leadership teacher and in many ways trying to teach the leadership system that I wished I had, but in many ways had to go through the process to have it. So it's a fair bit of sense making from that experience and now hopefully passing it over in some form of wisdom, which has a value to others as they go along that journey themselves. That's awesome. And that's why you're here. We were talking about leadership today and it's talked about a lot these days. I think the internet has brought people and learning closer to home. And that's what our topic is. In your own words, what is leadership? It can be described as many things, but I think it's an idea of taking responsibility. I think that's a big part where it's it's all on you, but never about you in some ways. And, and taking responsibility to force or forge 
some form of change, people might say, would you, is it always about change? Well, even to, as you know, to maintain in some ways will be a requirement of change in some shape or form, even as expectations and values and the world around us changes, our context changes and it always will. So therefore, how we go about what we do will need to change. And most of us have embedded in that some form of ambition that we would like to take something from someplace now to someplace better than that going into the future. So I think it's probably focuses on those ideas and I think of it a lot about the gaining of wisdom. I read recently someone talked about we spend our 20s and 30s mainly going up what they call the smart curve, you know, trying to get smarter and once you've realised you're probably smart enough you know, to do what you need to be able to do, you're never not learning. I'm not, I'm not saying that. You've got enough. The second curve is is what I'd call the wisdom curve, which is then the how, how you bring value from the smarts you learnt for the benefit of others. And I think if you get to do both of those things in life, well, it's, it sounds like a pretty good life to me. Agreed. I've read your book and we're going to talk about the book a bit. In the book, a quote says, leadership is not something you do, it's something to be. Do you want to sort yeah. of elaborate on that quote? I think I came into it liking the idea of doing it rather than being it. I think it was more about being a bit special, seen as being special. Does that make sense? Yeah. If you get to be a leader inside an organisation, particularly a leader inside high-profile organisations, which the one I was, there was, there was always a feeling you might be a little bit special. That quickly wears off. If that's your ongoing motivation, I've got no doubt there was a fair bit of that embedded in it for me. I think there was initially a fair slice of ego and, and also probably you know, following in the footsteps of a well-known father as well. There were definitely layers of that inside that. Uh, but quite quickly, I worked out that that was quite a indulged and almost narcissistic approach to leadership. To be leadership is actually having enough confidence that you can walk in the room as you. And yes, you get the benefit of the learnings of the people you've you know, had the experience of working with and the mentors you've had, the books you've read. But when you actually can find a place where your leadership is an extension of who you are and you're okay about that, that's the something to be. Whereas I think the something to do is often layered in parts of yourself which are quite external. It's more about your leadership capability, the impact that you can actually make. Whereas the something to be still needs that. You still need to have that capability piece, but it's more about your leadership consciousness you know what's inside you and finding a way where that's okay and I don't know about you but I grew up with this idea that leaders were people who had some gift of knowledge or understanding or insight that we us mere mortals didn't have and so therefore we turned to them for the answers and often they would give you the answer even if it was wrong that they they were knowingly wrong it was a low amount to fall off if you like to be wrong rather than to actually admit you don't know and so the something to be leader would actually come into the room as a learner rather than a knower, would come into the room as a teacher, not a teller. Those sorts of ideas are good little check-ins on yourself. And I don't think you've really led unless you've woken up in the morning and your first thought's fuck. Yeah. That would be my experience. And that's going to be a recurring theme. So if that's going to happen, and I would say there were phases of my career that was happening daily. That was the very first, once whatever dream world you'd been in had left your subconscious and then probably your conscious, first real thought you actually had was, fuck. In that sense, leadership's not what's happening inside you because we've all got stuff happening inside us. We've all got feelings, thinking, and stuff which will impact the way we behave. 
So it's not what's happening inside us. We generally what happens inside us is a response to what's happening around us in some shape or form. Like if our world, you know, in my world, if we'd lost five games in a row or we'd had a controversy inside our club or we had some infighting or we had some poor relationships, which was always a possibility, it sits on the edge of that the whole time because of the competitive nature of it. Yeah. What's happening inside you is a response to what's happening around you, but really how you're measured is how you show up. So that's the something to be, you know. So you've got to become good at the inside in response to the around you piece. So you actually get to show up in a way which is what the situation requires of you, expects of you, needs from you. And so you can't turn up angry. You can't turn up sulking. You can't turn up bereft. You have to be able to turn up in a way which at least gives the room a chance of getting an outcome, which is hopefully taking it forward. I love that. And I wanted to just touch on, we talk about managers, management, and then we talk about leadership and leaders. What's your take on the difference between the two? I think you can manage without leading, but you can't lead without managing. I was given the title of a leader, like it had something with designated. I had responsibilities which were aligned to that. I thought I wouldn't have to worry about stuff anymore. You know, that's something that some other person fixed up. But if you ever become personally disorganized, it basically takes you out of the game. If you're not aware, and one of the great lines from James Clear's book, Atomic Habits, is that we don't rise to the level of our goals. We fall to the level of our systems. So even as a leader, you're saying, well, my goal as a leader is to achieve that. I go, well, tell me what the system that you're going to actually develop and implement, which works for you, which allows you to be that. And if you can't, come up with that, well, you better go back and do some work. And that's always evolving. That's always changing. And even in the work I do now, as I say, I teach a system of leadership. And as I mentioned before, the one I wished I'd had. And I won't tell you what your specific goals are as it relates to your organisation, because I wouldn't dare to have that sort of insight. And the system I teach is actually all built off questions. And they're all what and how questions. What does this role expect of me? What does success look like? What do we need to be good at? How will we know? How do we make it happen? They're all questions which build around that. Your manager might be able to answer those questions, won't be able to push the agenda through in the way that you need to good at how you're going to influence, how you're going to motivate, how you're going to inspire, how you're going to win the room, if you like, or align the room, build values, hold accountability to those values, sort of sniff the air if they're ever getting out of control. Sniff the air, smell smoke, work out whether there's a fire or mm-hmm. not. They're leadership things. Yeah. And the one thing I would warn against, the minute you lead, it doesn't mean you stop managing. And in that way, I'm thinking a good manager is a highly organized person. Well, so is a good leader. Yes. Yeah. I think I've heard the quote before. They say management is getting something done by utilizing other people. Whereas so if I have a task that I need to do, mm-hmm. I delegate that and someone else does that task on my behalf. That's sort of yeah. overseeing yeah. and managing. And there's probably leadership qualities and good instructions and good communication and all sorts of things that you need to probably do by delegating a task and managing it. It's very different as a leader to set that overarching vision, the change that you talked about and driving sort of performance moving forward. So my next question is really sort of an interesting one because obviously a lot of your leadership teachings have come from what you've seen in your involvement of sporting associations. Can you give an example of how leaders in business can learn from leaders in the sporting world? Yeah, the first thing was I was the CEO in elite sport. So I wasn't coaching the team. Yeah. So I come from it more like you come from your world, although the critical element of our what we were seeking to achieve was to to build successful football team. That was part of it. And I never got to be part of a premiership. There's probably a little chip on my shoulder which will <laughs> always be there because of it, but I almost went into it understanding 
So the roles I played, because the majority of the CEO roles I played were when the club was at pretty much its lowest point. You're coming in as the person. And that was never by design, by the way. That was the ones where the opportunities actually were, you know, because generally those organisations were going through change. And one of the most serious changes any organisation can make is to change the CEO. So, And I was the next CEO, if you like, in terms of that. And I actually even made this mistake when I was inside the organisation. It was, it was actually when I was CEO at Fremantle and Chris Connolly was the coach. And Chris Connolly, we made our first ever finals. The club was really rebuilding. We created a really good profit model, business model around the club for the first time. And we were seen as being a bit of a success story, but we petered out. We'd reached a point we hadn't been able to say. So we were studying all the great clubs around the world and we got to spend a week at, at Liverpool. And, oh, uh, my club. Your club, yeah. yeah. And my club too, yeah. <laughs> awesome. So it's great. It was around 2004, 2005, and they had really good teams, you know, that during that time. And I kept asking Chris when we'd spend a day with Raf Benitez or Benitez and say, okay, what did you take from that and how are you going to apply? And almost to the point, and we know each other really well, where he, he said, can you stop asking me that question? I want you to answer it. And what I'd worked out was that what I was expecting of him, I had no expectation of myself. We're really for him, what we've got to do to be a great team, we have to create a great system of producing a team, which by definition, if it's a sporting club, is it's creating the best learning environment we possibly can. Can we create the best learning environment? So I've got an expectation of him as coach that I never had of myself. And so that was like a penny dropped moment for me. And so from that point onwards, and so that was mid to that. And I think I was around this thinking, but it was never as absolute in regard to this, is that I thought my role as a CEO my role as a leader here is to create the best learning environment we possibly can. It gives people the best chance because I think everyone has to be able to answer three questions. Do they know their role? Do they accept their role? Do they play their role? Well, all of those three things require them to have context and understanding of what their actual role is. And most of the time, people can't yet do that. But if you're giving them an opportunity to do that, by creating a great learning environment, whatever that might look like for your organisation, at least you're giving them a chance. And by doing that, you're also then in a position where you can actually assess whether they're the sorts of person you want to have in your organisation as well. Alan Jeans, who I got to work with, a great football coach, he used to say, you, you can't put in what God took out, which I think he got from uh, Chariots of Fire, the movie. <laughs> yeah. You can't motivate someone who can't motivate themselves. And I think learning is a core element of whether you can tell a person's a motivated person. Now, do they have an openness to learning? Do they have a curiosity? Is there courage in being prepared to be a not-knower? Are they prepared to be an unlearner, to be a learner? In the Australian, we recruit the most selfish human beings known to mankind, being mm. the 18-year-old male. And the very first thing we have to educate them is selflessness. And unless you can take that or make that transition, you're not going to survive the system. So I've got that expectation of him and I don't have it of myself. That was a critical moment for me. So even, even with you and your role, I'd say, are you at the most fundamental level creating a great learning environment? Because by doing that, you will then get to find out the quality of your people. You'll get to find out who's prepared. Your people either only be in one of two stages. They can either do the job which is expected of them now or they're on track to actually get there. Well, you'll only know which whether they're in either of those two phases if you're given an opportunity by creating the environment to enable that to happen. So that would be the very first thing. In my experience, business doesn't think like that nearly as much as all of the high-performance environments, mainly sport, military, these, they're all about learning. That's the first thing they think of. Whereas business, we're all about 
getting moving pile A to pile B or pushing. Whereas, yeah, I think that's where the biggest change will be. I reckon that'll be the wave of change. And what I think that will also mean is we will keep people inside our organisations who do offer wisdom. You know, people who understand. I know, I know that happens with you guys. You keep people inside the organisation because of the value of their wisdom, not just because of their technical capacity inside the place. Well, I have to say, we have a saying here. We say we're a teaching organisation or like a school because yeah. we're fortunate enough in the professional world, we hire university graduates as accountants and they come straight out of university as like an yeah. apprentice. And in order for them to be successful, a great candidate or a great employee, a great contributor, we yeah. need to make them learn and get better year on year. A bit like the first year recruit that you get, the 18-year-old yeah, footballer. Yeah, he's good. Mm. He's probably amazing at what he does at the youth yeah. level. But mm. to play senior football, he needs to take his level to the next stage. So I yeah. can see the you know the similarity of a football club yeah, and much. our organization. But then you yeah. think about some other businesses like if you're a wholesaler and you import products, sell products, you're right. They're just moving A to B. And the learning piece may not be as smack bang in the forefront of that particular business, but I can yeah. see how powerful it would be for an organization that of that ilk, putting yeah. learning in as part of their sort of organizational yeah. DNA. It's interesting because I did some work recently with an organization who logistics is a big part of those, of which you know, there's an aspect of their work, which is a big part of it is we've just got people who are working in the stores. That's what they do. So how important is it that you have the term we call is the high mindset people. Right? They've got good growth mindset working in, they go, we want them to be really good at what they do. And those who are in it for a long time, and some people will have worked in this place. It's one of those organisations where they got, they've got 15 to 20-year employees and yeah. in stores. And I say, which ones are the best? They go, the ones who teach the next one how to do their job well. They're the best people. Because what that means is that if, if someone comes in and wants to do this job and they're not prepared to learn what it requires even to do that type of work, well, people get injured, people get killed, people get hurt. There's a lot at stake. You know, we might think there's a lot at stake, but there is. There's more at stake there than perhaps anywhere else in this organisation. And so if we've got people who aren't prepared to learn walking in at that level, well, that's actually almost the biggest risk our organisation can in fact take. They want to work out really quickly whether someone's got at least a mindset to learn what they need to do to be good at that particular role because that's all we want them to be good at. Mm. We want them to be good at their job. That question, what does the role expect of me? Everyone in the organisation needs to be able to, like at the most fundamental level for that person, the role expects me, yes, to work a good, effective and efficient day, but it also expects me not to kill people. It expects, you know, if I put something at the top there and it all falls down on someone three days later, well, that's a disaster. And it normally comes back to someone not thinking it through. People will often push this idea of learning and understanding. Anyone who watches a game of Australian football, they know it's a fairly complex, it's an oval played on an oval ground over a long period of time where players are playing to the point of exhaustion the whole time. But in the end, what we try to do is we keep it as basic as we possibly can. Yeah. People are often amazed when they're in the change rooms of a, an AFL club before they run out. It doesn't sound that much different to what the under-14 sounded like. I've actually heard that. I can't yeah. remember what it is that I watched. I think I watched I know, a Clarko speech or something like that. I'm a Hawthorne fan. And I'm like, is that it? Is that all you're saying? I've heard yeah, that yeah. growing yeah. up playing junior junior soccer and stuff. And you're, yeah, you're waiting it's, for it's the magic. Simple. Yeah, I'm like, what's where's the magic? So yeah, it was. Yeah. It is simple, isn't it? And sometimes it you know what it is. If you overcomplicate it, I guess we it do. just it becomes too difficult and it's hard to execute. So yeah. I guess it's so, the simplicity. So know your role is just still the most almost the most 
fundamental thing that we can ask people to do is to, to actually do their job. Mm. Just do your job. And so the, the New England Patriots, Bill Belichick, who's probably as successful as any sporting coach in the world, really, over a long period of time, that's the only mindset. That's the only thing that they've got. They've only got one sign up, one line up, every piece of paper which would come out of the place, everything would just have do your job. But there's a lot embedded in that piece of understanding. So if I was to step into your role tomorrow, do your job would be unbelievably complicated for me. And if I wasn't careful, I would actually try to be good at all the things that I'm not actually very good at. Mm. But if I actually looked for common pieces and go, oh, no, that's a bit like this or that's a bit like that, oh, I get, oh, yeah, okay, I understand that now. You look for ways of actually giving it context. And I'll say to people who you say go from salespeople into sales managers' roles or something like that, and they go, oh, no, I'm not, I don't know if I can take that step. So the first thing we do, okay, what makes you good at your current role? I'm really good with the relationships. I'm good at follow-up. I'm good at getting back to people really quickly. I'm, I can tell a good story. And I go, well, they all sound like pretty good things to build a leadership game on. You're just giving it a different con. So build around stuff that you're good at. Don't try and build around stuff that you're not very good at. Play to your strengths, right? Yeah, very much. Yeah, And the stuff that you enjoy, the con- uh, storytelling, as you could probably tell already, is a big part of how I teach. And people say, well, you're good at telling. No, I'm good at telling the stories I'm good at telling. (laughs) I don't tell stories that I'm not very good at telling. So you stay within your lane in terms of that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, as a leader of an organisation, it is the leader's role to set the vision, the purpose, where the business and the organisation's going. Can you tell us why that's so important as a leader to get right? I think it starts with a simple idea, vision-driven, values-based. And so vision-driven for me is answering the question, what's possible? So what's possible here? We can look around the room. We can look out to the wide world. We can see what's actually happening. So what's happening in the world and how it relates to us? How do we build a vision inside whatever that thing is? And that just gives us a little bit of a light at the top of the hill. That's really all that it is. And once we've put it down in some shape or form, we've got to be prepared and understand that that might not be the right light. We might have to move it over a bit or we might have to bring it down the hill a bit. Or we, you know, so those elements to it. In the movie Lincoln, Daniel Day-Lewis, who plays Abraham Lincoln, there's a line in it that says that true north is you know, a really important piece of information, but it's only one piece of information. The compass will tell us nothing about the terrain, the weather conditions, you know, what our opponents are doing, whatever it might be. But yes, it's an important piece of information to have. So recognising that, yes, vision-driven, having a vision is that, but we also need to be very good at charting the course. The values-based piece within all of that is in answering the question, what's important? So what's possible and what's important? So what's important then goes to how we show up, the behaviour stuff that we talked about before. If I'm the leader saying that what's important is trust, but I'm not prepared to hand responsibilities over to someone else, I'm holding it all myself, it's basically saying that those values are only what you talk about, they're not how you behave. All a vision does and even a value statement, all that ever does is articulate intention that's all it is Mm. then what you've got to try and do as a leader is behave to that intention when things get messy and murky and all of a sudden that vision becomes unimportant because you're getting panicky we have a bad week or a bad month and you know so I change everything and I respond in a way and I don't hold my nerve and people work that stuff out so it's one thing what the test of the vision is and what the test of the values is is the test for you as a leader is can you behave to those things you know if you 
you're saying calm is one of our values, but you're the angriest bugger in the job. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. I, I, I've got a story for you on this one. I'm very fortunate enough to have a general manager in our business, Tim Ling, a bit of a mentor of mine, and he's big on he, this. He was, the wise, he was the wise man I was thinking of. Yeah. He is so clever, and he said to me, and the showing, you've said showing up so many times already. And before I met him, there was a rule that apparently used to go around me when I first became a partner is that you don't talk to Savan until he's at his second cup of coffee and it's past right. 10 a.m. And, That's not and a good rep, no, no, that was a long time ago, Cam. <laughs> um, and then Tim taught me, he said, and he actually taught me that showing up, it's not just about showing up, it's everyone looks to you as the person you're portraying what you want the organization to be. So if you rock up moody, angry, you don't want to talk, that you're then saying it's okay for everyone else to do that. It's a bit like parenting in a way. And he said, so, and then he used to say, have you ever seen me angry? Like he's always just the same. It's just the baseline is never changes. Now he's always great to have a laugh with and so on, but he's just always on. And what that does is it allows people to, Firstly, mimic what he's doing, but it gives them confidence that when he rocks up, they know what they're going to get. They're going to get confident, yeah. enthusiastic, smiling, all of that stuff. But it's always the same. He could have had a thing blow up at his house, but when he mm. rocks in at 8.30, he's on. And that's kind of what I learned about the showing up. And I realized how important that was because yeah. once I started growing into the role as a partner here and I thought, hold on. It's really important. And what happens is, is when you're relaxed, calm, and we were in a high-paced environment here and people are like, well, if he's relaxed and things are blowing up everywhere, it's going to be okay. So let's all calm down and get the job done. And, and I really do appreciate the values that Tim's put into that yeah. training for me and I really have seen the benefits. So I love the word showing up and how you show up. So it's a big part of it. It is. And it's a... There's a whole lot of learning just inside the story you just told. So the power of the story. So I'll remember that story. You'll always remember that story. Yeah, I will. Whereas if you gave me a couple of data points, I wouldn't. People remember stories, they forget data. Because there was two elements to it. One, the value of having that sort of wisdom inside the organisation. Two, the courage for him to actually tell you (laughs) for a start, you know, because, mate, don't worry, people just let that stuff go by. Then there's the humility from your perspective to go, hang on, I mightn't have been doing this right. All of these other elements come into play. So I don't know what the organization's values are in an overarching sense, but I get a sense that their courage would be encouraged, you know, bravery in that sense. Humility, that is value. Calm is a value, if you like. And they don't need to be on a mouse pad or on a sign on the wall or anything like that. They're there for people to experience. And I'm of a world where because my parents were, they were born in war years. My parents were very young as well. My mum was only 16 when she had my sister. So I had my parents almost peers in, in some ways. So military was a very powerful part of the whole thing. By the time we come through, the, I'm, and I'm older than you, but by the time we come through the system, we're still heavily influenced by those leaders who come out of a very you-do-as-you're-told mindset because that's what the system as it related to that actually required of them. And it took a long time for me to go, hang on, I'm not sure that system's right. My, my first person who had a major influence in my working life was Ron Barassi, who was the most terrifying human being you've ever met in your entire <laughs> life in many ways. Like he's, they used to go the hairdryer treatment, mate, your ears were pinned if he, if he went crook at you because that was such an observable way. And you wouldn't do it now, by the way. And again, that's part of it. 
but he was also someone who you felt almost like a deep sense of love. Even when he spoke to you, I, I remember got myself into strife. I did something silly or just took a shortcut. And I was just a young boy. I was only 18 or 19. And cop the cook, and look, I, I was almost ready to resign the next day. I took it so bad that I was so embarrassed, and I'd let him down, and all those sorts of things. And he came in the next morning with big smile, big whatever, and uh, was telling me his story. And, and I was almost like he'd forgotten that he'd given me this cook the day before. Then he actually put his hand out on my face and touched my face. And he, he used to have people in his little circle. There's a great Carlton player by the name of Alex Jezelenko. Yeah. He coached, and he had this funny look it sounds quirky when I say it now but he'd call your name and put Alenko on the end of it like I'd be Kamalenko or Schwabalenko <laughs> or something like that but it was almost like I'm in your circle now I'm, I'm one of yours and I'm only like 18 or 19 he's the super coach. you walk down the street with Ron every single person he'd walk past and say g'day Ron he was a rock star he almost had to keep his eyes straight otherwise he just couldn't cross the road almost if you're walking through. he was like famous and I was you know, obviously impressed by that, but intimidated by it at the same time. I realised a relationship with Ron was like this constant and consistent giving and taking of, he's going to make these beautiful deposits of love and care. And I always felt that he had my best interests, always felt that. But every so often, mate, he was going to go the other way as well. And so the decision for me as a young person is, am I prepared to buckle in on this? You know, am I prepared to, and it wasn't for everyone and even players, it just was too much for different times. And then it transitioned out of that a little bit in his own. The same thing applies. If you can't deliver feedback in a way which is about the person's expectations and standards, we all have to be, we're we're an organisation, we have expectations and standards. You need to be able to deliver on that. I'm not necessarily saying you're going to give the hairdryer treatment like Barasti, but at the same time, it's got to come from a place of love and care as well. I'm all for love inside organisations. It sounds really weird, but we're going to ask people to put 30, 40, 50 hours a week into our organisation. They don't feel care or love. That's just bullshit. Yeah, I agree. It's that feedback's part of this episode. And I wanted to go jump into that. I'm going to just yeah. fast forward a couple of questions and keep going on the feedback part because it's probably the one that I struggle with the most. So I think as a leader, what Barras did there for you was he gave you really good constructive feedback. But yeah. then somehow the next day when you were feeling, oh my God, I should resign he kind of brought you back in and said, it's okay to make a mistake and all that kind of stuff. And you felt trust and all the rest Mm. of it. For me, what I struggle with the most is just giving that negative feedback. And most people, when I say negative or constructive or someone's, you know, made a blue, I just struggle with that because I've got this thing where I always need to be loved and I don't, (laughs) I'm not very good at it. I'm not saying I don't do it. I do do it, but it's really the one thing that's outside of my comfort zone What advice would you have for people like me that sort of really love giving the positive stuff but really struggle? And that's where the learning can really come in is when they need to be told, hey, there's another way of doing that and have you thought of that other way? Firstly, I've got no advice. (laughs) Okay. But I'm happy to share some ideas. Tell tell, What are the ideas? Okay. So, and I heard that first from Eddie Jones, actually, that idea of advice versus ideas. Yeah. And I like it because that's that teacher versus teller. Mm. The teller really is it's like when people say can i be honest with you i go well you've been lying like oh yeah yeah Yeah, i want you to be honest with me but i'm assuming that's the basis by which we have a relationship but yeah the first thing on feedback is in sport we call it the breakfast of champions it's like fundamentally embedded in it 
and there's lots of forms of it. There's lots of types of it. There's certain sports very, very good at delivering it in quite an efficient way. So often feedback is in front of your teammates, for example, because if I'm giving you feedback on a per- the person next to you can also get the benefit of that feedback. They're probably pleased they're not getting it themselves in that moment, but they also get the benefit of it because that's what team-based environments do. If it's actually, you, and that's a judgment call then, is this a piece of feedback I give in front of someone or is this a feedback? But in sport, we create a mindset and an understanding and an environment where we understand that's going to happen. So don't necessarily put it into a business where they're not used to that. You know, that's actually part of it. The second thing is on the feedback is we work unbelievably hard in sport to ensure the feedback is good, okay? It's rational, it's systematic, it's strategic, it's valuable. All of these things are embedded in it. And the way we do that is by consistently assessing people. The process of assessment is just happening every moment of every day. And so what happens, I find in business, is they go straight to the feedback piece, but they haven't done the ongoing work to actually. So one of the systems I teach is that you assess your people on a weekly basis. And people would say, okay, well, not much changes in a week. I go, well, why do you reckon elite sport does it like on almost an hourly basis? We assess every training session. Do you think a person trains differently on one day versus the other? And they go, no, not much. Okay, but if they improve by this much because you've just noticed that their efforts dropped off or that their their kicking drops away when they get tired or they lose concentration halfway through a session or these are important things. So you're regularly assessing your people. And the reason you do that is because feedback is embedded inside the conversations that we actually get to have with people. It's not a one where we make it a, a major exercise in anything. It's one where we say, like each conversation we can have with you is an opportunity to say, look, yeah, that was a terrific piece of work the other day. I've been thinking about that, the way you handled that situation. And then you go, and then the other one might be when we're walking out of a meeting, say, mate, were you really switched on in that meeting? Because the best feedback happens in the moment. You kept looking at your phone during the meeting. Was your phone more important than what was going on in that meeting? Was- I'm going to use that one, by the way. I've written that one down. Yeah, yeah, so just even having that idea that people are always aware that feedback is a possibility and it might be that, and then then you make yourself available to it as well because no one tells the CEO their baby's ugly. It's a really difficult scenario to get yourself into a place where people are comfortable about giving you feedback. So you create the environment for that to happen. So what it is, it, it's to change the narrative inside the organisation where we don't amplify feedback. We make it as, a, as part of the day-to-day conversation that we have. And we also frame it in ways where people give, make it much easier to give it and receive it. And so I've got, I've got three little, it probably doesn't surprise you, I've got three little rules of this. But the first rule of feedback is the first one is, can you back it up? Can you back up what you're about to say here? If you can't back it up, that doesn't mean you don't have a conversation with someone, but it's not feedback. It's actually gaining of information. It might be that I go to Savan, tell me what happened with that. That's not giving feedback. That's just, inf- and then the person says, then you might be in a position to give feedback. Then so hang on, no, no, we don't want that. The second one, is it important? Is what you're saying, is there a value in it? And the person receiving it mightn't see it's important, but you can then explain why it's important, why it's important that you stay focused inside a meeting. Like, for example, and I'm going to do some stuff with you guys, but the time we spend together is like match day. You don't get to spend much time together. So can we make the time together the most valuable time of your entire working week? And then what's going on on your 
emails, much more than even our client meetings. Our time together is like match day. This is when we perform at our best. The third one is, is it coming from a good place? Can I trust that it's not coming from a place of anger or a place of ego? If your view is, oh, you made me look bad, well, then that doesn't tend to be coming from a good place, you know. So to normalise it, first of all, you've got to do the assessment and assess regularly, not on a major. I do character, capability, connection. They're the three domains, character, capability, connection. And there's a couple of things under each of those, happy to talk to those. And you're generally giving feedback as it relates to one of those three. And generally capability type feedback is relatively easy where you're saying, I, I need you to improve in this piece of capability. So you might have to learn something new. But if you're questioning a person's attitude or if you're challenging a person's you know, relationships or whatever it might be, that you need to make sure you can back it up. I've just recently bought this book. It's called The Coaching Habit by oh, yeah. Michael yeah. Bungay. And he says, mm-hmm. and he's all about, I haven't, I haven't started it yet, but it's talking about ask more questions and say little. So it's, yeah. it's, it's yeah. a bit like yeah. what you said there. You said, oh, how could you have done better in that meeting or was your phone yeah. more important? You didn't say you yeah. weren't listening. You asked yeah. the question. It was really, and it's so much more powerful. So I'm looking forward to reading that book. It's sort of my little learning of trying to get better at providing feedback and coaching. So yeah. you're also asking the person to make their own call on it. Mm. And most of the time people go, yeah, you're right. And it'll be interesting to see in the book, I think you'll find a lot of the questions that you'll ask, they'll be what questions and how questions. And generally, you know, you're being the teacher rather than the teller if you respond with a what or a how. If I know the answer, my first response is to give you the answer. Well, that doesn't necessarily help you then piece a key piece of thinking that you would have been better for you to find out for yourself. So the coaching work I do now, or, or I can sort of see an answer, you know, you just, and because I'm enthusiastic, yeah. and I, you're almost jumping down the, you know, to actually give them the answer, or help them formulate it, help them find a way to actually, that's stuff you then remember forever. I want to talk about high performance teams and look, I think most organizations, they all want to, you know, there's not all, maybe most, but a lot of organizations want to achieve something. They want the best talent. And obviously that's the nature of the game. Then we get this awesome talent and they're a different beast. They're motivated. They're driven. How do we manage the real high performance? Like, I don't know. How did Clarko manage Luke Hodge? How did someone manage Cristiano Ronaldo and all these great players need to be told but they're the best of the best. So how do we deal with that as a leader? Alan Jeans would say God's not very kind to coaches. That's, <laughs> that's what <laughs> The first question we have to ask in any context is, is team important to us? And I often say to people, okay, what sort of team are you? Because often are we a relay team or are we a yeah, like in the sport I come from, we call it invasion sports. And there's probably a thing which sits in the middle is cricket. Because cricket's sort of one-to-one, but it's team. It played in a team context. And I'm, I've got no doubt fielding and some elements of it. It's much more team-oriented now than what it ever was, but it's not team-oriented the same way as the footballs are or hockey or basketball or whatever. I really like the analogy that you gave, the relay. It just clicked straight away. I'm like, oh, yeah, relay, because you just – it's yourself, you pass the baton, oh, yeah, whatever, they could run. Yeah, yeah. Love that. Even when it comes to working from home, I, I say to people, let's use the sport metaphor. Are you playing golf or tennis or are you in a relay? Or are you playing in a you know, team-based sport? And I always, have, I always put the baseball, cricket thing, which sort of sits in the middle a little bit. If you're a, playing an individual sport, as in you just have to do your job very well, you can work from anywhere. 
You can work from the moon. Doesn't matter as long as we've got your Wi-Fi. You know, so you can work from anywhere. I don't think we've got Wi-Fi on the moon. Just <laughs> no chance. <laughs> but you can work almost from any, if and if you're in a relay, you could almost work from anywhere as well. You might say we want to build a team ethos around so you get to know people and all that because we. But even then, I say, well, that might work for that person because they're living in Berwick and you're going to ask them to sit on the freeway for an hour and a half every morning. That doesn't make sense, you know. And then you say, well, are we a like a, a genuine team? As in we we have to give sacrifice for each other, we have to encourage each other, we have to work with each other, we have to hold each other to account, we have to give up part of our, which is sacrifice, give up part of who we are for the greater good, all those real team-based ethos. If you land on the last one, well, now you're going to have to be a bloody good leader. This is going to test you because that's where you're now starting to say, I've got this really talented group of individuals, or hopefully I've got this talented group of individuals who we can create something which would produce a better outcome by working well together than if they're working separately and alone. That choice needs to be given more thought than perhaps it is. I would say, for instance, your leadership group, you need to be, yeah, we're a team. We've got, we've got to be very much focused on team-based attitudes and team-based responses and it's not about you but it's all on you if you know what I mean you know it's not yeah. a, it can't be about you but in the end it's all on you the responsibility is with you in that way so the measurements I, I mentioned before so character capability connection these are my ones just writing down so under character the first thing we write down is ethos well, tell me about the person's ethos and I, I like the old-fashioned nature of the word ethos because it goes mm. to work goes to effort it goes to attitude. It goes to how they show up. Okay, so that's it. The second one is mindset. These are, are they a learner? So in in measuring our people, we would like to think that they're good in getting better at those two things, particularly younger people, because they might not worked all that stuff out yet. Get to our stage, we want to. That penny would want to have dropped once you get to the parenting stage. I think. Yeah. So ethos, mindset. Then under capability, we talk about skills. Okay, we don't talk about talent. Talk about skills because it's the skills you need to do your job well, which is different to talent. Yeah. Hopefully it comes from a place of talent. It might be talent plus effort or talent plus because you don't get to do all the things that you're good at, but we want you to be really good at these three or four things to do this job well. And we measure that. The second part of capability we measure is track record. Has the person built track record? And ultimately, if the person hasn't built track record in a role where we've given them all sorts of support, there's nothing got in the road, all those, if they haven't built track record in six to 12 months, there's a pretty good chance they're not going to, in my experience, in most working environments. And then the third piece is then connection. So character plus capability equals connection. Because you won't connect with someone who you don't think is a good person and you won't ultimately connect with someone who you don't think can do the job either. Because we are actually asking them to do something. We're not just employing good humans. We're employing good humans who have a, it's like you and I would love to have played AFL football. I, yeah. I, I reckon I would have probably trained hard enough. I reckon I would have worked it out. But I knew I couldn't run fast enough kick it hard enough, I didn't have whatever the, the intangibles that the sport demands from us. And under connection, we talk about buying. The first one is buying. Is the person buying in on who we are? Are they buying in on the vision and the values? Are they buying in on each other? Do they actually get what we're trying to be here? And then the last piece of that is then relationships. So under connection, we have buying and relationships. And I think relationships is almost the most important measurable inside an organization in any high-performance environment. So you talk about a coach taking on a really gifted player. 
if that player develops strong relationships quickly, you know you've got something pretty special because people, they know what they're looking for. They won't develop a strong relationship with someone who they know cuts corners or they, know, they won't develop a strong relationship with someone. And so even from a football point of view, we measure in a very general sense, we measure what we call personal character, which would be things like we've talked about, football character, which is an interesting notion because that's you know really work ethic, courage, all those sorts of things come into it because there's a certain thing that you're required to be good at to play this game. Then it'd be football talent or football acumen, but often intangibles. But the player, we like players who have got high intangibles. Like you're watching the grand final on, on the weekend, and even though Buddy had poor game, but his intangibles are through the roof. You know, just that combination of stuff that he brings each time he he plays. Yeah. You, know, you saw it with um, a lot of those the really good Geelong players. They've got high intangibles, but I reckon they tick the football character, football, our personal character boxes big time as well. And I think you may have answered this question, but in the sporting world and in most sports, there are so many examples of champion teams beating a team of champions. I've read a lot of a lot of stuff that you've written and put out there, and you say that great teams play with a higher purpose. Is that yeah. what you meant or does that mean something yeah. different? Yeah, so the higher purpose really is, am I prepared to set aside part of who I am for something the team needs? Like, like you could be the third best midfielder at Geelong but be the first best midfielder anywhere else and you're okay with that. And it might be that you're okay with that forever, but you're okay with it today and you're okay with it next week. Come the end of the season, you might say, actually, I'm, I'm ready to be the first midfielder somewhere else and, and that's okay. We understand that. That's life. And by being the third best here, you're also costing me 300 grand a year. So there's that <laughs> to it as well. So, But when you're in and you're signed up, that's what it actually means. And so this is that idea of know your role, accept your role, play your role. So knowing your role is actually much tougher than what people think it is. People say, I want to have more clarity. Well, generally clarity in my experience is built off what we talked about before is connection. You won't get clarity unless you have connection. So if people don't have connection with you in a way that they can trust you to have the sorts of conversations where you go, look, I'm not really sure what's expected of me here. And you can actually sit down in a non-judgmental way. You might be thinking, okay, well, what part of us haven't, haven't we taught this well enough? Haven't we explained it well enough? What part of them is actually them not being able to learn it or understand it, well, that's a pretty important piece to know. If you've actually taught it really well and most people have under, well, that person mightn't be, they mightn't be able to do that job. And if they can't do that job, the quicker we know it and the quicker they know it so they can actually go and find something they can do and not waste all of the things that they're wasting in terms of their own career to actually do that. So know your role, that's a big part. Accept your role. And accept your role is easy when you just go, yeah, I'll do that. But when you walk out the office, are you still going to accept the role? Yeah. Because accept the role means you're not doing this and you're now doing that. Okay, you'll get that. And then that third part, play your role. And it's interesting because that came out of, they were, they were from Lee Matthews and they were, the, they were the three expectations that he had of his triple premiership team in 2000s, early 2000s. Just know your role. It's a bit like yeah. you know, Bill Belichick with just do your job. Know your role, accept your role, play your role. So it's so simple. What these things do is they... And we go, well, how come they're so bloody simple? Like they're guardrails for our conversations. Because you actually can say, to, I reckon any of your people who you might, you might be thinking about someone now who's not going as well as you would have hoped. And if you just say, do they know their role? Have they accepted their role? And are they playing their role? Well, there's probably so many things you can draw out of that now for a very meaningful conversation with one of your people. Yeah, love it. 
And, and these things, they're like little guardrails. You know, there's the LA Rams, for instance, their key thing is we keep the main thing the main thing. And I really love that. So the main thing for them is everyone, this is in their football area, by what we're doing now, what we're talking about now, is it making the football team better? That's the first main thing. Is it making the football team better? The second main thing is in all forms of elite sport, there's a lot of distractions. There's a whole world out there talking about us of which can impact on us if we're not careful, questioning us, doubting us, saying we were terrible last week, we were disgraceful, we were this or that player can't play. That There's a lot of people paid to have opinions in Australian football and I'm talking in this case in American football and they're deliberately contrary because that's a far better conversation and a much more interesting debate than saying, yeah, look, I reckon they're all terrific, I think they're doing the right thing. That, that doesn't happen very often. So is that the main thing for us to worry about that? No, it's not the main thing. And keep the main thing is also for you in terms of your work, know your role, play your role, accept your role. As long as you know what the main thing is for you, well, these are the four or five things you have to be really good at. You've got to become a superstar at your four or five things. That's what our things are. So just even a simple line like that, when they're in the middle of a conversation and they're all getting a bit whatever, they go, someone can just say, are we keeping the main thing the main thing here? Mm. And everyone goes, no, we just we allowed ourselves to go off somewhere. And you can have that little bit of fun when you're travelling in the bus to the game or you can do but not when we're in our place together. We're trying to make us better. And so these little ideas just keep, and that's why footy clubs and sporting clubs, they're great at saying things which seem really simple, but they're bloody hard to do. Even stay focused, but try and do that. It is actually a really difficult thing to do. You stay focused, you know, in a world like I just looked down at my phone and because it just flashed. <laughs> Even staying focused in that moment is a really difficult, you know, thing to do. Yeah. There you go. Well, look, we're very lucky to have you on a two-part episode. I want to say thank you for joining me on this one. We love talking about leadership and we are fortunate to have you back. We're going to be talking about executing a game plan, accountability, and maybe dealing a little bit about adversity. And I can't wait to be talking to you again, Cameron. All right, cheers. Thanks very much for the opportunity. I really enjoyed it. This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. This podcast was produced by accountancy firm Alexander Spencer. At Alexander Spencer, we've been helping business owners realise their goals since 1952. And we play a pivotal role in developing, implementing and supervising the business goals and strategies of our clients. To find out how we can help your business succeed, head to our website, alexanderspencer.com.au. To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Bottom Line, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Savan Tuna, and we'll be back next episode with more tips to help you transform your business. And that's The Bottom Line.